Hi friends. Uh, first of all, sorry this episode is going up so late. I'm just about to get married, and as it turns out, weddings require a bit of admin. Who knew? Uh, so I've been deep in that business. Also, I am broke AF. So. I've been taking every job that I can get my hands on to pay for it all. So I've been teaching workshops and doing commissions and making pasta collages for commuters stopped at red lights, selling turmeric to school kids, that kind of thing. Which means uh, my little one-man podcast operation sad to take a back seat for a couple of weeks. But um, I'm back now. Uh, the wedding is about a fortnight away, but... I've got the time still to uh, to sit down with you guys and try and make something. Oh, and um, it should go without saying that um, if you support the show on Patreon, you, you get to come to the wedding. Of course. I mean, yeah, of course. That goes without saying, right? You don't need to dress up. Just come in your civvies. Uh, if you give $25 a month, you, you, you're allowed to pick up the wedding cake with your hands and then blast out of a vuvuzela during the first dance alternatively um you can stay at home and enjoy the other perks that being a supporter provides including bonus episodes of the podcast and uh, a fake adam curtis documentary that i made about howard from the halifax adverts if you want to sign up uh you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash ross g sutherland Thank you to everyone who has uh, signed up in the last month or so. Uh, I really appreciate it. You are the the, uh, the the sacred fisherman of my heart. Your support is holding together this rickety ship one month at a time. So thank you. Um, on with the episode. Recently, I've been thinking about love, and uh, specifically, I've been I've been trying to work out. The first time that my heart truly broke. I'm not saying that my heart is permanently broken. I'm not saying there's just two historical periods before heartbreak and after. Um, what, what I'm looking for, I suppose, is just that moment in my life where my heart hurt the most. What moment did love really beat the shit out of me? Because I feel... Um, Whatever moment I choose uh, to represent that, like it has to be transcendent, right? It can't just be a breakup. It has to be something rooted in romance, but then kind of like expanded out of it. It just kept growing and growing until it encompassed everything. Of course, that's a hard thing to quantitate because we persistently get better at dealing with negative emotions. Repetition tends to dull trauma hence it's new experiences are often the scariest the first cut remains the deepest i have one particular story that um that's stuck in there in the back of my head like a like a crack in my tooth i i even dream of it sometimes my subconscious is clearly still running simulations on this memory trying to uh, to find out a way to neutralise it. 
I think my brain retells this story over and over because it is trying to discover a version of this story that feels positive, uh, a version that feels heroic in some way, but it can't. It, it just can't seem to find that version. It's like a uh, like a crossword puzzle that you keep in your bag for years. My mind just pulls it out about once a month and then tries one more time to fill in the gaps. I don't really want to tell you anything about the girl or about the relationship itself because uh, that's her business as much as it is mine. But uh, in, in broad strokes, I can say we lived together um, for nearly five years in Liverpool, broke up, and then I came back to my parents' house, uh, which is in a small village in Essex. I'd been back at my parents for about two weeks uh, when um, I hear through the grapevine that uh, my ex was seen at a party kissing another mutual friend of mine. Now, I have to mention this kiss because this is the variable that the entire story arranges itself around. Right? I'm testing an equation, you could say, right? And this kiss, this kiss is, uh, this is the ex. When I, when I hear about this kiss, it, it's, it's like I've been hit by lightning. Uh, you know when you open the fridge and then immediately forget why? You know, you have a tiny little fridge-based ontological crisis. Well, th- this feels like uh, like gawping into the biggest fridge in the world. I've opened a, a planet-sized fridge and then I just go blank. Everything is cold and meaningless. I no longer know why I'm here. I leave my parents' house and I go for a walk around my village. I actually, I go for a walk all night long. I just walk and walk. It's like uh, I've been switched back on the factory settings. It gets to about four in the morning and I'm sitting in the children's playground on the other side of town and I'm so tired, but, you know, I, I know I can't sleep. So my plan is this. The village shop, a.k.a. the spa, opens at 8 a.m. So all I'm going to do is I'm going to hold tight and wait for the spa to open. Then I'm going to go in. I'm going to buy a four-pack of beer with the spare change in my wallet. I've got just enough for four beers. And then I'll find somewhere quiet to drink these beers away from kids going to school or people driving to work. I don't know. Maybe I'll uh, I'll, I'll disappear into the forest uh, next to the village and drink my beers in peace in the uh, in the woods uh, and then I can kind of dull all these anxious thoughts that are running through my head and then I can finally go home and sleep so I pass the next four hours taking another trip around the village walking up and down every street it's all filled with memories from my childhood and all this nostalgia it's just making me feel worse all it does is drive a deeper division between then and now because like all these scenes they're all dead You know, all these houses, they're filled with different people now. These memories are just... They're ghosts. And nothing more. Calm eight on the dot. I I push my way into the spa. The bright light stings my eyes. But I can see behind the counter is this nice older lady called Molly. Now, everyone in my village knows Molly. Uh, she's been behind that counter for, um, well, I mean, they, they pretty much built spa around her. And after a night 
wandering the, the frozen streets of my village, like seeing that familiar face, uh, I, I could feel my heart lifting an inch. Maybe that was just kind of evidence of continuity, proof that some things go on no matter what. I go to the freezer, I pick up a four pack of Fosters, I'll take it to the counter, and I look at Molly and she looks at me and she says, have you got any identification? Uh, which I don't, because I'm a grown man. I can't remember the full argument, but what I said back to Molly was not pleasant. I mostly said, what is your problem? Over and over and over. More than the words, it was the way that I, I, I spoke. I remember that, um, that I, I refused to leave when they asked me. And, uh, and a young lad from the back of the shop had to come and stand next to me, arms folded, until I gave up. Uh, I remember walking back into the street, uh, which was which was now filling up with people, all on their way to work, kids on their way to school. I remember standing there, outside spa, breathing in the, uh, the cold, fresh air, and, and then my, my heart just exploded. It's more complicated when you're not just receiving pain, but also inflicting it. I, I immediately felt ashamed, you know, just to how, uh, how readily I'd passed on my sadness to someone else. You learn something about yourself in a moment like that. You can't take that back. Like there is, there is no redo button. And yet, my dreams are always trying to take me back to that morning. They're always trying to fix that past. My head just, it can't, it can't give it up. It just keeps telling that story back to me. Over. And over. <laughs> if my tale were to have a beginning, let us say it is with a kiss. A kind of crossing, if you will. The evening had arrived with news from Liverpool. A past betrothed of mine had been seen in the romantic company of another, leaving me in a somewhat Turkish frame of mind. Heady with emotion, I decided to take the opportunity to clear my senses with a long walk upon the Essex countryside to enjoy the hill roads and thrifty dwellings of my market town while the moon was at its fullest. And yet, I abandoned myself to any particular destination, allowing instead my trail to wind of its own will. I felt the itch of progress, and yet I could not grasp it as I walked past scenes of teenage rumness, the graveyard, where I had supped my first cider, the antique shop once featured in an episode of Lovejoy, the bench from whence the Jolin brothers would daily call me wanker, all now long faded to memory, like a small dog in mist. Feeling thirsty around the witching hour, I decided to make my way to Spa. 
Ah, Spa, I thought. Happy the man who can stand in that modest, pristine arcade and feel, if even for a fleeting moment, the truancy of time. To be sheltered from the destroying winds of one's own history, the soft song of Bonnie Tyler drifting through the aisles as one stands, weighing a forecase of Australian lager in one's hand. For there is no shame in Spa, no judgment, not here. It is a worldly enterprise, and all are welcome beneath her mop-scented dress. And so I bring my petty items to the register. Oh, reader, happily turning this page by the fireside at home, if you have ever considered the post of alcoholic a viable career move, then you should know my disposition. Molly watches as I present my unfortunate mid-noughties chain wallet. Sir, she says, her eyes looking through me and into some recent querulous past. Forgive me, but do you have any identification? (laughs) Alas, predictably, I do not. Just (laughs) the correct legal tender and my motherfucking beard, but sadly, no more. And so, after a lively exchange, I returned to the door, assisted by the shop boy, and there, on the step, taking in the morning air, I finally recognised my character. My heart sucked from my chest like a cow falling through a decommissioned mineshaft. All right, listen up. We just got the okay from Liverpool. So we do the job as planned. See this X here? That's the target. It's time to show them what this crew is really made of. Come 4am, I am in position here. Children's playground. After that, I'm going to head east, north, east, North, northwest, round the vicarage. West, northwest, south, east, north, northeast, east, north, northwest. Past the shop they film Love Joying. North, northeast, east, south, back down the Roman Road. Then west, ready at 8 a.m. to infiltrate. Spa. That's right. We're hitting the big one. You don't need to tell me, mate, what thief wouldn't want to take a shot at Spa. It's the fucking. Xanadu of every career criminal. A state-of-the-art security compound. We've got dry goods, we've got frozen, we've got four rows of magazines all with Paul O'Grady on the cover. But all we care about is the Fosters. We're on a clock after all. But listen, even if we get through the reinforced steel and the laser web, we're still gonna have to get past the chief. Ex-Stasi, sharp as a spring-loaded shoe knife. The prescience of a chess master, according to the bio on her MySpace page. But don't worry, lads. This is where my genius customer disguise comes in. Military-grade image mapping will cover my entire body in a photorealistic shopper camouflage. From the outside, it will be impossible to distinguish me from a sad 28-year-old man trying to buy himself a breakfast beer. All I've got to do is walk the loot right up to the front door, and the idiots will just let me pay for it. After that, 
it's easy. We just pass on the goods to our global underage drinking racket. Foolproof. Unless, I mean, nah, 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 nah. I mean, it couldn't. But, uh... Unless it turns out that Molly actually has the power to reach inside the human mind and see someone's true self. There is a 0.01% possibility that she is a telepath who can turn my psyche inside out like a dirty sock, revealing our entire criminal enterprise in a single look. But you know what? That happens. We just switch to plan theatre. Yeah? If security goes into lockdown, I immediately start shouting shrill, self-pitying accusations that make no sense. Of course, if you move like we move, then you know. Part of the job is knowing when to walk away. That's a sign of a real professional. Either way, lads, I'll be at the extraction point, yeah? You'll spot me easy. I'll be the one just standing in the middle of the road, paralysed by sadness. My face like a wall of a Category B prison. First, there is a cross. A crossing. Two celestial paths converge, and so begins. The final cataclysm. When Liverpool shall rise up and block out the sun and the sky shall turn to copper electrifying the sea and chubby lovesick twenty-somethings shall wander the streets of Essex like startled owl people and then the spa shall return to the earth the spa the subterraneous inverted temple of spa shall rise no more or can look upon their toiletries. Only the disciples of Molly shall pass. I walk into the fires of Spa to claim my prize, to claim what's mine. Molly watches, her eyes like the decapitated heads of Neil and Christine Hamilton. Do you have any identification? <coughs> She screams, but, oh, predictably, I do not. Just my helmet of sorrow and the coins of awfulness, but sadly no more. Oh, the folly to believe I could tame one of the ancients, that I could bend the apocalypse to my will. Unworthy, I feel my tongue turn black with hatred. My twitching hands possessed by the darkness bewitched by the consolations of Molly. It takes all my strength to claw my way from the temple. The Essex winds blow through me. I can feel Molly's curse sticking in my heart like an icicle of piss. The world will still end. And I shall end with it. Okay. 
It begins with a kiss, this And look, I know it's none of my business, miss I know that I'm too late Walking around town in a fugue state Ooh, great, I'll be coming at the spa Spa, spa, spa Open the fridge like I'm back at the bar Bringing the party back to life like I'm CPR Huh? You wanna see my ID? Do you think it's likely? A man with this body is like even 19 Ooh, should I speak politely? Running now with perspiration Bursting to curse but my nerves they stay calm Wallet from the pocket but I know the game I'm gonna need more than a young person's rail card Cause predictably I got nicks You see I got pics but the face don't fit to me And if I wanna walk out with more than tonic Gonna need my passport, prove it card, driving licence Or some of it for my full idea of my date of birth on it Do you have any identification? Do you have any identification? Do you do you have any identification? And I said, but I'm 28. She said, sorry, it's the law. I said, well, look. I got my uh, my university card here. Uh, it says I'm a PhD student, so you know, surely that proves I'm over seventeen, right? You know, I'm not Doogie Hauser or something. She said, "Look, you've had your fun. Now just move aside so I can serve a gentleman behind you." I said, "Look, I've been coming here and getting served since I was." 15 years old, right, was some 13 years ago. So if you think, here and now, I'm still only 17 years old. That means when you first served me, I was four. Do you remember serving a four-year-old back in 1995? Feel I would. Sorry, she said. I have never seen you before in my life. And uh, then uh, she looked at me with her eyes. But um, all I could hear was Bonnie Tyler uh, coming down from the ceiling singing, turn around, turn around. So I did. Thank you very much. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming down, everyone. I really appreciate you all being here to, uh, to normalise uh, unacceptable social behaviour. It's so great we can all come together like this just so we can laugh about me uh, intimidating uh, an old lady just for doing her job. So thank you. Good night. The, uh, the kiss symbolizes an ending of sorts. Um, the image of a kiss is often used as a sign of death. Othello says, no way but this, killing myself to die upon a kiss. In Ovid's Metamorphosis, death occurs no matter if you refuse love or accept it because both refusal and acceptance transform you in some way. You undergo a metamorphosis which erases 
the human subject at the heart of it all. In the case of this story, uh, the kiss represents uh, the beginning of a, a, a new love, which consequently erases the love of the protagonist, who suddenly feels pushed into the margins of his own life. Uh, the use of Liverpool is also symbolic, I think, serving as an extension of this idea of expulsion. Uh, Liverpool is associated with vibrancy and intense emotion. Uh, in contrast to the market towns of Essex, old medieval wool trading posts, almost entirely located within the realm of the past. Obviously, an Edenic metaphor is going on here. Our hero has been cast out of Scouse paradise uh, to toil in a kind of purgatorial Essex anti-space. We see uh, this character, this this Ross, wandering their town aimlessly, uh, the public space reimagined as labyrinth, uh, with the village shop representing the Minotaur in many ways. Uh, the name Molly, close to Moloch, the root of the Minotaur, uh, adapted by Minoan storytellers. Also, Moloch is the uh, Canaanite god associated with child sacrifice, uh, appropriate for a story uh, in which the protagonist has to prove that they are not a child uh, and, and what's more fails to do so now you could say uh, that this is a quest narrative a search for beer yes uh, for self-annihilation uh, but the martyring sort when um, victimhood is intended to bring something into being it's an attempt to appear not disappear a search for beer has a further religious aspect, uh, the Foster's Lager that Ross is searching for, has another name, as this advert from 1987 can confirm. Foster's, the Amber Nectar. Amber Nectar. A positively Homeric phrase, if ever I heard one. Like the nectar drunk in Homer's poetry, is the Amber Nectar also analogous to the ambrosia of the gods. Well, we could always cool down with a couple of ice cold fosters. From the same advert, listen to how actor and Australian Paul Hogan describes the substance. Mm. Tastes like an angel crying on your tongue. Tastes like an angel crying on your tongue. Now, look at the whole story through the lens of this phrase. Expelled from a kind of Eden, Ross. Our marginalised character hallucinates himself into a labyrinth, a disruptive space where inside and outside become entangled. You can see he is lost, trying to locate a new story, some kind of new heroic purpose, which he believes he will find at the centre of the labyrinth. Soon after, he decides that this purpose will be martyrdom through drink, believing self-annihilation will allow him, in a way, to remonstrate with a higher power, challenging the forces that excluded him. This is supposed to be his furious revenge, his tears mixing with the tears of angels, the amber nectar. He believes that this will be a showdown with his God, but instead, at the center, he meets Moloch. who punishes his arrogance by taking away everything he had left. All identification, his purpose, his history, all of that is sacrificed. Riches 
that he didn't even know that he had until they were removed. And that's really the essence of this morality play, how hate and bitterness only erase us further, right? It's a bit obvious uh, when you put it like that, I suppose. Another allegorical reading would be an examination of the cost of trying to position oneself at the centre of a story and why any attempt to occupy such a space is in fact self-destructive. The Ross that we meet here might actually be a reference to a minor part in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Ross is Macduff's cousin, always hanging around the edges, mostly delivering exposition. At the same time, uh, it is through Ross that Macbeth realises that the witch's prophecies are coming true. Shakespeare's Ross exists within the stability of the peripheries. There's a simple realness to just walking on for a minute and telling people what you've been up to and then walking off again. It's it's uncomplicated. That's appealing. Compare that to the insanity of the centre stage where Macbeth has to interpret everything, fight everyone, lose everything. In this particular Shakespeare play, the margins would be the best place to hang out. Why would anyone want to get any closer to Macbeth's black hole psyche? But this is precisely what we see the Ross of our story attempting to do. He is pulling a Macbeth, bitter of being cast out. He's trying to bully his way back into the centre, trying to make the story all about him, dumbly unaware that at the centre of a labyrinth is not God, but Moloch, always waiting, always hungry, for a sacrifice. The witches erase Macbeth by convincing him that he's the hero. The Ross of his story suffers the same fate. He doesn't realize that the center can erase you even more efficiently than the margin. Of course, in the Shakespeare play, Ross eventually sacks off Macbeth altogether. He abandons his batshit monarch and fucks off to join Macduff's army instead. And I feel like maybe that's the lesson we need to learn. That's the lesson that our Ross character missed. We can't occupy the centre without it destroying us. But that doesn't mean that we are trapped or helpless at the edges. Because we can still change the thing at the centre. We all have the option at any time to exit back into the wings and find a new story to appear at the edge of. The stories are never about us. But... There are an infinite number of stories that we can be an extra in. And that is what a heartbreak is. It's just a momentary splice in the tape. But the tape always goes on. We just exit the back of one scene and re-enter the back of another. And that is what I learned from getting ID'd in Spa. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Imaginary Advice. I'll be back really soon. Yeah, that's all for me. Advice.